right. Well, we'll go ahead and get started this morning. Good to see you all here. Uh, let me open us in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word and its truth to us. We pray that your spirit would open our minds to study well this morning and to absorb much. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would bless us and our families and bless those who could not be with us here this morning or are on their way and traveling. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, very good. Um, if anybody does not have a handout, um, they, we, I do have some extras up front here um, for this morning's lesson. Um, Caleb, maybe you can hand out a few folks to meet them. All right. So just by way of review, uh, we've been going or starting to go through the Westminster Larger Catechism. And uh, does anybody remember from last week uh, why the divines decided to create two catechisms instead of one? Yeah, so the shorter is designed, uh, some have used the milk and meat scenario, right? The shorter is designed to be the milk and covering the basics and, and hitting the basics. The larger uh, is to be the meat. Um, and because uh, the divines realized that you can't do both or couldn't do both very well uh, together in one and accomplish both purposes. So they separated it. Um, all right, so who remembers the question of question number one of the larger catechism? What is question number one? What is the chief and highest end of man, right? Okay, so we're going to do some, some drills here, okay? What is the chief and highest end of man? The answer is... Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. So remember there, the difference between the shorter and the larger there is really between those two words, right? difference of those two words and, and adding them to the larger, those words being highest and fully, right? So let's say this again together. What is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. All right, let's say that one more time. What is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. Very good. All right, so this then leads us to question two um, this morning. And there is a wonderful flow I, I found in the Westminster Standards, both in the Confession and in the, in the Catechisms. Um, we see a similar flow, um, but here we find somewhat of a difference between the, the focus of the beginning uh, questions here, the first two in particular, in the, in the larger catechism, and uh, where the confession starts, right? So the confession starts, chapter one, with scripture. And why? Because that's how God and where God reveals himself to us. Um, along with general revelation, which we're going to be talking about today. 
But as we compare that to the shorter, right, the shorter starts off with what is the chief end of man, right, um, similar to the larger. But question two then uh, dives right into scripture. Here in the larger catechism, the divines have taken, well, they've paused that step, so to speak, and they have uh, focused on the doctrine of God briefly. And, uh, and the question is, how does it appear that there is a God? Okay. And then they're going to be talking about scripture in three and following. So that is our question here, and, and we'll consider the answer this morning. Question number two is, how doth it appear that there is a God? And the answer is, you can see on your handout. Anybody need handouts? Okay, and the answer is, the very light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God. But his word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal him unto men for their salvation. Okay, so there are some important truths that we're going to dive into there this morning. So as we can see, uh, focus-wise in today's question, um, the proof of the existence of God is true here, right? Whereas question one teaches the reason for the existence of human beings and what our grand purpose is, question two focuses on the proof of the existence of God and uh, how God is revealed to us, okay? So this touches then on the subject of what we call apologetics. And who remembers or knows what apologetics is? What's a good way to... Defense of the faith. That's right. So apologetics is the reasoned defense of the faith, right? A reasoned defense of the Christian religion. And when we talk about apologetics, um, there are kind of four main schools of thought in that regard. Okay. Uh, there is the evidential. There is what we call classic uh, apologetics or classic reformed apologetics. There is presuppositionalism. And then there is a reformed apologetic epistemology. Um, now, some would probably combine the latter two together in some regards. But, uh, for example, uh, in classical apologetics, um, some of the, or a couple, uh, kind of the more well-known proponents of that school of thought that some of you may be familiar with are men like R.C. Sproul, um, uh, Steve um, Nichols, um, most, I would say most of the, the guys at Ligonier are probably classic apologetics and in that school. Um, R.C. definitely, you know, was a big proponent and, and champion of that. Um, John Gershner would be another. Um, but we see men, for example, in the presuppositional camp, uh, men like Cornelius Van Til. Um, when you think about uh, presuppositional apologetics, you, you really have to consider Van Til because he was really the champion of that. Uh, Bonson, who was one of his protégés, 
one of his students is another uh, example of uh, a guy who was uh, committed and convinced of a Vantillian presuppositional position. Um, <clears throat> we could talk about other historic theologians, uh, Bob Inc. and others, um, maybe more on the evidentialist side. Um, and so, I mean, there's, there's a list of men that we could compare and, and identify into those different schools of thought, okay? Um, but one of the things that I want to point out here and kind of discuss here uh, more specifically is then what do we consider, and you see the question on your handout, what is Reformed apologetics, okay? So when we talk about Reformed apologetics, and as is true in a lot of areas of theology, um, people may desire to say, hey, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a Reformed apologist, but you really have to ask, well, what do you mean by that? Um, Van Til, uh, he very much considered presuppositional apologetics as a Reformed apologetic, right? And so um, if you're talking about apologetic nerds, and those who like to study apologetics and have, um, have read many, many pages on the subject. If you talk about Reformed apologetics, most of them will say, oh yeah, you're talking about Vantillian presuppositional apologetics. Um, others would say that you know, uh, uh, the classic position is a Reformed apologetic. So um, you know, I think Sproul even has referred to that um, as a Reformed apologetic. So again, you really kind of have to to ask the question, what do you mean, to make sure you understand um, how they're viewing and then what, what uh, school of apologetic thought they're coming from before you make too many assumptions, okay? So, but this morning I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the reformed presuppositional apologetic uh, position and uh, talk about a little bit of the history of it as well as then um, where this apologetic takes us in a biblical approach to defending the faith um, and to defending and proving uh, God's existence, okay? So during the latter part of the 20th century, the Dutch Reformed apologist Cornelius Van Til, he sought to pave a way for having a consistently Reformed apologetic. Now, um, I'm going to talk about what he means by this, right? He didn't, uh, though building on the Reformed theological giants such as Warfield and, and Bovink, um, Van Til did not believe that their apologetic methods were consistent with their theological system on the whole, okay? Thus, while Van Til embraced the theology of Old Princeton, okay, um, he sought to bring a reformation to how Christians uh, thought, so Christian epistemology and Christian apologetics. And he saw it as a mission for consistently defending biblical Christianity before a watching world. So whereas um, in, as, as apologetics as a broader uh, school and in the broader sense of defending the faith, as some schools, maybe as a classic position in taking reason, right? And all of the positions are, use reason. Um, so it's not like classic is the only one that does that. But my point is, is that as um, they would try to reason the person that they are talking to through to maybe the point of saying that they recognize that there is 
a god or a uh, supreme being, right, who, um, who exists and uh, who created things, that um, the Reformed apologetic, uh, presuppositional apologetic position would take it even further to say, well, yes, it's not just that we're saying that we want to prove the existence of God or reason the existence of God, generally speaking, but we want to, uh, Lord willing and by his grace, convince the person that we're speaking to regarding the living and the triune God, right? The God of the Bible, right? And so uh, scripture is going to be a huge focus in the reformed presuppositional uh, method, right? Of, and and where, what is our goal, right? What is our end? We're really wanting to, uh, we're, we're, we're praying that they, their eyes would be open to see the triune and the living God. Um, and uh, so, um, Van Til wanted to bring some consistency uh, in defending a biblical Christianity. And um, so, toward the end of his, so to speak, his magnum opus, so to speak, the, the, the defense of the faith. Okay, and if you have ever read that book, it's a great little book to read. Now, I will say, and everybody who reads and knows Van Til will tell you the same, that Van Til is not the easiest read. Um, but he, uh, he's deep and he's meaty, but if you, if you sort through it and you chew on it, it's very rich, okay? And so um, I would say that guys like Bonson, like Greg Bonson, do a great job of kind of distilling Van Til to making his positions uh, more understandable uh, to the modern ear um, and, uh, and, and, and helpful in that regard. But at the, toward the end of the defense of the faith in that book, Van Til wrote, quote, when Warfield makes the high claim that Calvinism is nothing more or less than the hope of the world, he is speaking of the reform system of theology and of the reform point of view in general. Other types of theology are supernaturalistic in patches, and to some extent they yield to the idea that man uh, to some degree is saved by his own effort. Therefore, Warfield argues, Calvinism is just Christianity, right? We've, we've heard that in discussions. Maybe you didn't realize that Warfield had made that statement. Um, but if you are, are talking uh, amongst other Reformed friends or, or other people in general, maybe you've heard somebody say that, uh, somebody who's a Calvinist, Calvinist is, Calvinism is biblical Christianity, right? But then precisely, he goes on, uh, precisely by the same reasoning, reformed apologetics is the hope of the world, Van Til says. So the point is simple. If Christians are to bring the gospel to the world, they should do so through a reformed apologetic method. And this is what Van Til sought to do in his own day in his responses to modern philosophy. Okay. So it's only through a truly reformed presuppositional apologetic method that we adequately challenge the wisdom of the world. And what exactly then are the central theological tenets of a reformed apologetic? Well, ultimately, those tenets uh, rest on the same central truths of reformed theology. And let's consider those briefly. So, for example, regarding covenant theology. Without a historic Reformed covenant theology, this apologetic method, it doesn't work. Covenant theology is an essential 
uh, peace. All men are in covenant relation to God himself. And because of this, man encounters the triune God everywhere he goes. And Van Til writes this. He says, quote, To speak of man's relation to God as being covenantal at every point is merely to say that man deals with the personal God everywhere, end quote. So as we, t- we make those statements and observations about covenant theology more broadly, then let's look more specifically at the covenant of works. So according to Van Til, there are only two types of people, right? They're covenant keepers and covenant breakers. And in the garden, Adam represented all mankind. He was a federal head. He was uh, to perfectly obey, right? And Adam and all in him transgressed. They broke the covenant of works uh, when he sinned. And by way of the fall of Adam, all men are now covenant breakers. And so we must tell others that both we and they are sinners by nature, without God, without hope. And so regarding the effects of sin, then, original sin has touched even the human mind and reason. And because of sin, man's reason is spiritually darkened, Ephesians 4.8. Fallen man cannot be expected to reason his way into faith. Rather, the Lord must remove the spiritual blindness of his heart and mind. We see that in Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. Right? So one, in the presuppositional apologetic method, one of the, the first uh, efforts and places that we begin is to, as we begin to talk to the person is to, say, is to find out what their presuppositions are and uh, what they believe to be true. And to talk through those beliefs and to show how they ultimately have holes in them. And those holes will become more manifest um, as the conversation goes on. But to show how their presuppositions fall flat. But then offer to, for them to hear our own uh, presuppositional structure and what we believe. right? And to then, that that conversation would then lead to the gospel. Right? It would lead to uh, a, a discussion about Christ and salvation. And it would lead to, of course, in that discussion, of course, we would be talking about the existence of God. But Van Til's point here in understanding the effects of sin is that the depraved man or woman um, cannot reason their way into faith. Right? It is a supernatural um, act of God for one to believe, for one to see, for one to understand, for one to accept the existence of God and to know the living and true triune God, to know Christ, um, that is um, an act of faith, right? It's an act of God to open their eyes and to remove their spiritual blindness. So regarding the covenant of grace, Okay, regarding the covenant of grace, Adam broke the covenant of works and brought divine curse down on all mankind. And so Christ came to undo what Adam did and to do what Adam failed to do. Right? Christ is the second Adam. Um, and so where Adam failed, Christ has succeeded. And so as a result, God's people are now partakers in the covenant of grace. All men are either in Adam or they're in Christ. When Christ redeems, he transfers his people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. 
And so then we see that there is regenerate reason because of that transfer. So in order to embrace Christ, God must give men a regenerate heart. And this includes the regeneration of man's reasoning. When man is born again, he has shown the error of his own thinking and, thinking and driven to acknowledge Christ. And one of the common misunderstandings of this tenet of Van Til's thought okay, is that he taught that non-believers can't reason at all or that non-believers can't know true facts. And that's not what he was saying. Van Til, indeed, he, he, he taught that unbelievers can know true facts and he taught that believers can even learn much from unbelievers in many fields. But rather, he taught that until God removes the blinders from the heart of man, the unbeliever will not be able to see the fact for what it truly is. And at, at the bottom of it, facts are part of a greater system of God's truth. And until one grasps that, there remains a funda fundamental misunderstanding of the fact. And so then we see the sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture is the primary tool that God has given his people with which to defend the faith. And though Van Til was not opposed to the use of evidence in apologetics, which that is a frequent critique of his, uh, of others against him, that he is opposed to the use of evidence. But rather he taught that scripture is sufficient in the apologetic endeavor. Scripture is sufficient in the apologetic endeavor. And you may be wondering, what does this have to do with question number two? It has a lot to do with it, right? Because, again, we're talking about apologetics, the existence of God. How do we know that God is? And we're going to see the importance of the revelation of God in that. So he taught the sufficiency of Scripture. And since men are in covenant relation to God and created in his image, they know deep within themselves, that they are covenant breakers. We see that in Romans 1. They possess a knowledge of the true and living God, and yet they do not honor him. You can look specifically at verses 18 through 21 regarding that. And in fact, let's do that for a moment. Let's do that for a moment. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me. Let's look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. And if you have it, just call it out. Okay. Go for it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, very good. So so we see the reality and the truth of what man knows. Right? What man knows, what the Lord has revealed and put in the hearts of all men and women, yet what those who are who are apart from Christ, those who are depraved, they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Okay, um, and so we see that it's, the truth is manifest in them. That knowledge, 
God has shown it to them, right? Since the creation of the world, right? They're clearly seen, his, his attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, right? And so they were without excuse. It's a very important truth to understand as we consider these things. And thus scripture is sufficient in the, in the task of apologetics. God works by his spirit through his word. And evidence is useful as long as it is seen in its proper place, which is in the Lord's system of truth. And so as we look more specifically at the question at hand and the language therein, um, what are the divines referring to here when they say the very light of nature in man? Does anybody have any thoughts or ideas about that? The very light of nature in man and the works of God, they say, declare plainly that there is a God. Praise the Lord. Yeah, it's, it, is, uh, it is what the knowledge of God is what we can obtain through our view of creation. That's what's in view there and talking about the light of nature. Let's turn to uh, excuse me, uh, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. And if somebody else could turn to Acts 17, verse 28. And as we're turning there, does anybody have any thoughts or questions about the kind of the presuppositional apologetic method or anything that I was talking to about there regarding what Van Til taught or um, some of those quotes or reasonings that he gave? Fantastic. Yeah, I would say so to an extent. I, I would have to go back and kind of revisit some of... I, I was familiar with uh, EE a, long, a number of years ago, and I would have to go back and refresh myself on some of their tenets to maybe give a clearer answer on that. But let me let me look at that, and I'll get back to you. Yeah, because, I mean, on the one hand, I, I would say I think so, but I don't want to mischaracterize if I'm wrong. Does anybody else have any more solid? Travis, are you familiar with EE? Okay. Yeah. yeah, I'll be happy to look into that, though, and I can, we can talk about it next week. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I can't remember what the word is. Uh, it's basically the study of knowledge, right? The study of what we know um, and how that knowledge develops and how it applies in different areas of doctrine, uh, epistemology is also very much of a, it's, it's involved in philosophical discussion too, right? Um, so a lot in philosophy, but also 
um, just more generally speaking in what we know to be true and how we know it to be true. Um, yeah, yeah, good question. Any other questions? Yeah, 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 very much so. And, you know, I, I've, I've used that method for years, um, and I've seen, you know, wonderful things happen. And it's not just, you, we gotta be careful, right? The method is, it's not a formula that is just, oh, hey, I do A, B, and C, and bada bing, bada boom, there it goes, right? No, this is all the work of the Lord, right? But it's, but it is, it is an argument and, and a school of thought that is that is understanding the limitation and the blindness of the depravity of man, but also um, understanding the power and work of God by His grace and will, um, and praying that that conversation would and that is ultimately leading to the gospel, right? Um, would be the Lord would be pleased to use and opening their eyes and giving them faith so that they would see and, under, and understand that God is and who Jesus is. So. All right, very good. So in regards, okay, so Psalm 19, does anybody have that? Somebody call that out? Sorry. Yeah. Uh-huh. So this is what we refer to. There, there are two. Generally speaking, there are two kinds of revelation, right? Um, we see this in how the confession in chapter one lays it out. We'll look at confession one point one in a few minutes, but we also see it here in that um, we see the light of nature and the works of God, but then we also see um, the Word of God, and so we have general revelation, right? Um, but we also have special revelation. Right. So special revelation is scripture. Um, general revelation is creation, right? And the Lord revealing himself and his work even through creation like we see here in Psalm 19 uh, in those verses. Okay, who has Acts 17, verse 28? I got it. Jessica. For in him we live and move and have our being as also some of your own poets have Okay, very good. So in this passage, this is uh, more pointing us to what the catechism is saying regarding the works of God, right? In him we live and move and have our being. That, that is all the work of God, um, right? That um, demonstrates and points us to him, right? Um, our life, our, our movement, our being, it's not of ourselves. It's not of something else. Um, it is of and from the living God. And so it points us uh, and others to him. All right, so we've read Romans uh, 19 through 20. That is another good text uh, regarding this and regarding the light of nature and uh, the work of God. But let's also read Romans chapter 2, 
verses 14 and 15. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Okay, so, whereas anyone who has eyes and senses to see and experience the glory of God through his creation of the, the heavens and the earth, as we consider the works of God, right, God gives... It's important to see how God gives everyone a conscience. We see in this passage in our souls. He tells us right from wrong, and that is from him. And what is revealed about God through creation, it's that he is, he exists. His eternal power and deity uh, is evident through the created order. So we see what nature reveals, but and, and in specific, Nature reveals his work. It also reveals his character his per- his, uh, and attributes of who he is. Okay? But then the, the question goes on to talk about the sufficiency and efficacy uh, in Scripture to reveal God and salvation. Okay? So as we look at that part of the question, um, what do you think is important and what does it mean that the word of God sufficiently, and the spirit, excuse me, sufficiently and effectively reveal God uh, to men for their salvation? And I think the two important words there, right, are sufficient and effect, effectually, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is only by the work of the Spirit through His Holy Word, um, uh, read and preached, uh, that a person can often uh, sufficiently and effectually follow the faith. That's right. That's right. Yeah, in other words, um, general revelation does not show us uh, the details of Christ and His redemption, right? And so. Um, and what we must do to be saved, right? So uh, we do not see that uh, through the light of nature. If you look down at the bottom of your uh, of your handout there, um, I put the first section of the first chapter of the Confession of Faith. And can somebody read that for us out loud, please? Cameron, can you do that? Can you read it? Go for it, buddy. Himself and to declare that his love and truth shall 
Yeah, very good. So we see the Lord revealing his will, right, and revealing that which is necessary unto salvation. Um, in times past, we saw him do that, and we see in Scripture, right, him doing that uh, through the prophets. Um, but it was good and right, according to his most perfect and holy will, um, to put his spoken word in writing. Right, that we would have the living, the inspired, uh, the infallible, and the inerrant Word of God uh, given to us. And in order, and notice, I, I think this phrase is helpful for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan, and the, of the world. Um, and so we see the, the purpose of Scripture, the purpose of this special revelation given to us in writing, and it is of great help to us, right? It is, a, a, it is in many ways a great blessing to us to have the, the words and the knowledge uh, regarding Christ and the gospel, uh, to know what men must do to be saved. But it is also good to see how Scripture serves as a preserving, uh, as a as a pre as a means of preservation, as a means of propagating and promoting and furthering the truth, um, and as a means of uh, keeping us solid and established, giving us comfort, right? Because of all the things that the church is in the midst of, the corruption, the defilements, the temptations, the sins all of that type of stuff that is around us and within us, um, we need that. And the Lord knew that, um, and he sovereignly has given that to us, wonderfully has given that to us, and we have that in Scripture. Um, so there's more that we could say about uh, section 1 there in, in chapter 1. But whereas general revelation makes God known to man through his creation, God's special revelation reveals everything that we need to know about God and his salvation of his people sufficiently and effectually. Okay, and so we need to understand the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture too, right? Because there are many today even and in centuries past that have continued today in various forms and methods. We see it for sure in the Roman Catholic Church. We see it in others as well. Uh, Mormons and, um, and others who would say that uh, that scripture is not truly sufficient, right? It isn't the only rule of faith and life. It isn't the only rule of faith and obedience, right? Uh, of course, the, the Roman Catholic Church wants to introduce uh, the church as that, right? The, the church is the infallible interpreter, right? And so the church is the one that tells you how you must live. And if they go above and beyond or 
uh, add things to scripture, then it's still what those things are still what you must do in order to uh, uh, be living rightly before God and uh, seeking to please him, which is a in those additional things and in the ways that they twist that are all uh, sinful violations of scripture. So we see that, that it is sufficient. It is effectual, right? It accomplishes the purposes that uh, God has laid out in Scripture. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians for a moment. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. And if somebody else could turn to chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Anybody have 1 Corinthians 1, 20 and 21? Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, but pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Right. So the preached word, the preached gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified, was the main message. We've been considering this as we've been going through 1 Corinthians, right? Was the main message, the foundational message that Paul was preaching to all men, but even what he preached to Corinth and what Corinth had gotten, uh, had, had gotten their eyes off of and had started to, um, to slip into things that were not right because of the Corinthian uh, the broader city of Corinth's pressure upon them uh, regarding the world's philosophies and knowledge and, and their view of wisdom. Uh, but true godly wisdom is foolishness to the world. The gospel is foolishness to the world uh, because they cannot see it. They cannot understand it. It is spiritually discerned, right? Uh, the Lord has to open the eyes like we have been talking about here before. Okay, First uh, Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Anybody have that? Go for it, buddy. So the question here, rightly, in the catechism, right, by, but his word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectively reveal him unto men for their salvation. Keep in mind, remember, time and again, the word of God would be proclaimed. Christ's very words from his very lips would go into the ears of men and women and would fall on deaf ears, right? Pharisees are a great example of this, many others, where... He would give instruction, he would proclaim the truth, and they would hate him for it. They would not, re they would not receive it, right? Because there is the necessity of the Spirit's work in and through the Word in the hearts of people to understand. And so we see Word and Spirit as, an essential, uh, as essentially being together. Um, in terms of that revelation, right? Um, the Spirit has to make it known, 
right? The Spirit has to reveal. So through the Gospel, the Spirit reveals God as Savior and Redeemer in Christ. The Spirit reveals God as Father and Creator, right? Uh, sustainer. It reveals God as the Comforter, Sustainer, and guarantee of our inheritance and specifically the Holy Spirit himself in these ways as well as the applier of the benefits of our union in Christ okay, all that's done by the Spirit of God and so the word doesn't lack anything in that revelation right? we don't need to and must not go anywhere else to seek such knowledge or we must not think that that knowledge is insufficient and we need to go elsewhere to find the full picture. Right. It isn't missing anything that God has to supplement elsewhere or in another way for us to have that knowledge. Okay, so that's those are important things to remember um, regarding how do we know God? How do we know that there is a God? Well, God reveals that to us. Right. It takes God's condescension to man for us to know anything about him. And that is where we see his, his kindness, his grace, his love, his pursuit of us as his people, um, his care for his creation. Right? And that he not only created it, and he didn't just create it and stand back high and lofty as he is in the heavens, and have no special presence here with his people, or have no interaction with his creation, that they would know nothing. Because they couldn't, we couldn't stumble around and somehow find him. Right? Um, but no, he has to reveal it to us, and he has revealed it to us. He's, he's put, wonderfully, he's put uh, the knowledge of him in our hearts. Um, He's put the knowledge of him in all of his image bearers, even those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, um, those who rail against him in their rebellion. Um, and so we see these wonderful things. We see these wonderful things in Scripture that um, teach us about God, that he exists. Um, and we're going to consider more uh, next time regarding uh, Scripture and where the Catechism goes next in what we need to know and understand about the Word of God in questions four or three through five. And so uh, we'll look forward to that next time.